Hello, everyone, and welcome to Commitment Matters. We're so glad you're here. If you've been wondering just what the heck is going on with this economy, then today is the episode for you. Dr. Ted Jones from Stewart Title is here to tell us all the things we need to know. If you're wondering about where things are headed, he fills in the blanks about whether or not real estate is working up into a bubble, whether you should try to hire to augment your staff, what's going on with inflation concerns, how the residential and commercial markets will perform over the next couple of years, and so much more. Now, you might have already noticed that this is one of our longer episodes, and you're right, but we knew this information was going to be very valuable to you, so we didn't want to keep any of it from you. If you need to split up your listening time into one or two sections, that's okay. Just don't forget to come back and listen to it all. I think you'll be glad you did. Another note, just as your world isn't perfect, neither is the world of podcasting. We have some extra sounds at certain points that we left in anyway because, well, because of the same reasons I just mentioned. What Dr. Jones says is just so valuable, we didn't want you to miss out on any of it. So whether it's the thunderstorm noises or some paper shuffling or the pitter-patter of little doggy feet, we hope you don't mind too much and that it isn't too distracting. Grace and Shelby, by the way, send their apologies. They try to stay quiet while mom is interviewing, but they are not always successful. So now more about our guest. Dr. Ted Jones is the Chief Economist and Senior Vice President for Stewart Title. His experience and credentials are some of the best in the business, and I always appreciate his wonderful ability to take macroeconomic realities and apply them specifically to our world of real estate. If you haven't yet seen a live presentation of Ted's, I encourage you to at your next opportunity. In a normal year, he gives over 150 of them to many different professional organizations, so it should be easy enough to find. I love this episode, and I hope that you will too. Here's my conversation with Dr. Ted Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Very thrilled to have you here. You don't know this, but you were the one that first opened my eyes to the concept that this coronavirus thing could be a thing. It was last February. We were in Alaska. And you were giving a very informative, logical presentation like you always do. And then you put this giant asterisk caveat on everything and said, folks, we don't know what this coronavirus is going to do. And it has the potential to change everything. And despite that, you know, I'd heard a few things on the news here and there. I thought, oh, is this like SARS? Is this like H1N1? Which, you know, there were serious things, but they certainly weren't giant disruptors. And I thought, well, you know, Dr. Ted's paying close enough attention to this to say, hey, all this could go out the window in a heartbeat. Now I'm listening. And it was less than a month later that the world wholly changed. So I'm hoping that you can tell me today that this can be a bookend to that conversation And so I'll ask you, is the pandemic behind us? Where are we economically and practically? We are not through this yet. Now, the good news is those of us who are still here survived. And, and, you know, there are fatalities. I I talked to one of my good friends in New York today. He and his wife and four daughters have gone this amount of time. And this past week, he and one daughter came down with it. And they've taken every precaution they could have the whole works top logic. So now they're all quarantined at home for 21 days. It's been attributed to Mark Twain, whether he said it or not. History may not repeat itself, but it certainly does rhyme. Mm-hmm. If you've seen it once, you're probably going to see it again. Yeah. And you think back, you know, almost 100 years ago, we had the Spanish flu. And lo and behold, you think, well, these things kind of hit every 100 years. And so I had been kind of preaching for about five years that we're kind of due. And I'm not going to say I got lucky. I wish I'd been wrong. But what's amazing about this coronavirus, whatever you want to call it, covid what it's done, first of all, think back. We didn't know how communicable this was. We didn't know how deadly it was. We didn't know how it was communicated. We didn't know if you could get a vaccine. Still don't know if there's ramifications to the vaccine, although we're starting to hear some side effects and what have you. But we survived it. I'm so proud of myself. A year ago, March, I made a couple forecasts. One of them very controversial. When someone says, you know, we're going to sell a lot fewer homes in 2020, and I said, no. We're going to sell as many homes as we sold in 2019. We're probably going to sell more. And they said, how do you know that? You're crazy. And I said, well, I want to take you back to 9-11. Sure. 9-11 wasn't a transmittable disease, but it scared us to death. We stayed at home. We were fearful of going into public places with a large number of people. And as a result, I can remember even in Houston, many of the theaters closing down because he's had nobody attending. And if you look after 2001 and 2002, we had a massive increase in home sales and a massive increase in home prices. And I said, well, if you stay at home, your home now becomes more important and impactful on your lifestyle than it ever has before. And as a result, in fact, we've ended up with what I call the highest intrinsic value of housing in our lifetimes. That doesn't mean we're paying more for it, but we are. What it means is it has more value to our quality of life. And as a result, we decided, hey, if I live in a good house, I want to live in a great house. 
we even saw this in apartments. We saw people move up in apartment quality, saying, if I'm going to be in this place, I'm going to be in a nice place. Mm -hmm. And then we also coupled that with the lowest interest rates in history. And voila, you had not a record housing sales year, but the, we literally in the last 12 months, we've sold more homes than any time in 14 years. So I made that call. That was the first good call. And then secondly, I said, you know, interest rates going to go down. Now, I had a couple of heroes because of the pandemic. Neither of them are lifelong politicians. So I think I don't care whether you're Republican or Democrat. I'm discussing with both parties. So y'all vote how you want to vote. My two heroes last year were Mnuchin, Secretary of the Treasury, and Powell, Chairman of the Fed. Mm -hmm. yes. And what those two people did, let me tell you what we did differently. Go back to 08. We had the global meltdown of financial crisis, and it was caused by a housing bubble. Let's be honest about it. And what was different than we bought a home just to sell it to someone for more. We didn't buy it to rent. We didn't buy it to own it. I remember in college and graduate school, we had a professor that called it the bigger sucker doc. One sucker pays too much for property and hopes that another sucker comes along and pays more. And that's what happened in four, five, six, seven, and it all burst and melted down eight, nine, ten. This one, people bought a home to either live in or rent. Just the opposite. This is not a bubble. This is actually the interaction of supply and demand that drove up home values. But on the other hand, home values were somewhat offset by the lowest interest rates in history. We're sitting here in a whole lot better mix than anyone ever imagined. Mnuchin and Powell go back to what happened in 08. First of all, in 08, our home prices went up because of subprime lending. A lot of people were borrowing at 3 to 5 to 10% down. And remember, to qualify for a loan, you had to have a heartbeat, just one, not even five in a row, just one. And as a result, anyone could get, we had liar loans. In other words, you just declared, I make this much, you don't have to prove anything. We had just the opposite this time. We had the most stringent lending in our lifetimes. Every loan that's probably been made since literally 2009, 2010, they're good. Secondly, and I want to go back to what Powell Mnuchin did, and they proposed it, and they Kevin's Congress supported it. But you go back in 08, you missed two payments, depending on which state you're in. Your potential foreclosure at that point in time. Some states, their laws are different. This one, though, Powell Mnuchin, and like I said, Congress supported it and the president. They said if immediately everyone gets two months forbearance. You don't have to make a payment for two months. There's no penalty. There's no interest due, accrued interest due. There's nothing. It's not going to impact your credit. Oh, and then they said, if your mortgages were owned by Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, the GSEs, and many banks followed suit on this on and lenders' in-house loans, they said you can apply for another six months forbearance. And after that ran out, you could apply for another six months. So we all of a sudden have homeowners for 14 months and didn't have to make a payment, not one ding on their credit report. They still owe the same number of future payments. If you if you had 200 payments left, you still have 200 payments. They're just to be a year later or whatever it was. And lo and behold, what happened in the last 12 months? Well, the median home price in the last 12 months this is going to blow you away. It went up 19.1%. So you have a homeowner that may not have made a payment for a year. That's assuming over 14 months. And let's say they bought that right at the cusp of this thing when it started. They got 20% equity in their home plus whatever they put down, which means if they're in trouble and they don't have a job and they can't make their payments, they can list it. Think about listings. Typical home that closed in April of this year was on the market 17 days before it got an accepted purchase contract. So unlike 08, when all of a sudden your homeowner, if they couldn't make their payment, they were out. And by the way, they're underwater. Here, our prices are up. If they can't make their payment, they can walk out of there and, and within 30 to 60 days with an equity check. Mm -hmm. So this is a completely different scenario. And, and I give credit to Mnuchin and Powell for taking care of that. And then we did a few other things like the payroll protection plan. Let's talk hotels and theaters and restaurants. We can talk almost anyone except medical and title insurance or residential real estate. Because everything else kind of crunched down. All it said was, we'll give you a loan, businessman or woman or company or whatever it is, corporation. If you spend that money on paying your rent and your employees, your loan's forgiven. And that kept money in people's pockets. Now, at the very peak of this, so we're going to go for February 2020. By April, except for a few states, by April, most of them troughed, seven states troughed in, in May of last year. We lost 22.4 million jobs. And think about that. Most of those jobs were lost towards the end of March, all of April, like 45, 50 days, and we lost 22.4 million jobs. Let me put that job loss in perspective. I want you all to think back to the peak of employment in the previous cycle was 2008. We ended up with 138 million people that had jobs in the trough, and it took 24 months to lose these jobs. In the trough in 2010, we lost 8 million. So over 24 months, we lost 8 million jobs in the Great Recession. Now, in this pandemic-driven recession, we literally lost 22.4 million in less than two months. We've never experienced anything like that in our lifetimes. 
It's a light switch. Yeah. But because of the feds immediately keeping money in people's pockets, remember 70% of GDP is retail buying. Now we all know retail buying ceased in April and May, came back a little bit in June, but we had the biggest recession in, in our lifetimes. In fact, a good recession is a 5% drop in GDP on an annualized basis. In the second quarter of last year, we dropped 31.4%. Biggest plunge in one quarter, total value of outputs of the goods and services of the country. Got to have two consecutive quarters of negative GDP to call it a recession. We did. First quarter, we started it. Second quarter, that minus 31.4%. Third quarter, plus 33.4%. Largest gain in history. But that gain in history wasn't from businesses making money. It was from the government giving people money to have in their pockets and they bought stuff. That took us out of the recession. So we ended up last year only down 3.5%. So it was a completely different scenario than you and I had ever seen. Now, let's see where we are today. The forecast this year, in fact, these numbers ought to blow you away. Here's the forecast. This is GDP for this year. Wells Fargo says we're going to be 6.4%. Understand, in the last 30 years, any president would have probably given their pinky finger if they cut out a 4% GDP growth rate for the year. Wells is at 6.4%. The conference board's 8.0%. Goldman Sachs is 6.6%. Bank of America is 6.5%. Kiplinger is 6.2%. The Federal Open Market Committee, the Federal Reserve Bank, they're at 6.5%. Fannie Mae's at 6.8%. Remember, I told you 4% is phenomenal. And every one of those forecasts assumes zero new government spending. In other words, no new infrastructure plan, no new Green New Deal plan, none of that. That's exclusively on what's been put out there before. Now, we need to talk about these rates. Remember the American Recovery Plan, that $1.9 trillion? That's included. Had we not had that, you could have taken 4% off each of those this year. That's how much government's putting into the economy, keeping it stiff and backstopped as we speak right now. And by the way, they say that that $1.9 trillion spills over to 2% increase next year, depending on what the other economy is going to do no matter what. Now, let's back up again. Let's go back to when this first thing came about. Ordinarily, you can only collect state-by-state state unemployment benefits. If you lived in Alabama, you got Alabama. If you lived in Texas, if you lived in Alaska, you got that state. The average state unemployment benefits in the nation are $320 per week. Rewind to March of last year, April of last year, and the government, thanks to Congress and the president, we came in with $600 a week federal money plus the $320 a week. And there was a neat study done by LendingTree at that point in time that said, do you realize this? Over 50% of Americans unemployed are making more money unemployed than they made working. And 20% of them that were unemployed, let's go back to last April, May, June, July, August, they made more than double not working what they made. That was the first time that all of a sudden some people said, you know what, I'm better off not working. Even in Texas, we had a large number of people when businesses came back online, they said the employees come back and the employee says, why? And that's similar phenomena that's going on right now. This American recovery plan, the $1.9 trillion, didn't give the $600 per week. It gave $300 per week. So you're going to get $300 per week from the feds, $320 per week on average by the state, $620 a week. Still, you're going to look at about 40 to 50% of people because the people we're down to now are the lower income people that are still unemployed. You know, they say 50% of the people are still making more money not working than working. That's why you've seen almost 25 states now, the governor's saying, we're opting out of the Fed unemployment benefits. We're not going to distribute those anymore. And the reason is they want those people to go back to work. We have 8.1 million open jobs right now. We've never had that many open positions, people searching for employees in the history of the United States of America. So what we have right now is our economy that's looking pretty good. We have a large number of people that really don't want to go back to work because they're making quite a bit. Then again, without question, I know there's some people that don't want to go back to work because they're scared to go back to work. This pandemic didn't hit this country equal. I got to put this up front. If you were well-educated and you had a good median income or higher job, odds are you did not lose your job. If you were not a college graduate, if you're a high school graduate with some of the skill sets, you were one of those 22.4 million. This pandemic hit our lower income people job-wise. In other words, this pandemic hit the people who could least afford it the most. And so this 8.2 million people we still have unemployed right now, they're not high income people, folks. They're struggling to make a living. And we get that. We understand that. But now that said, all of a sudden, we have a large number of people that are making more money than ever before. Oh, and even think about this, you, you, that you're one of those people, median income or higher, you still have your job in many circumstances because think of the businesses that made a lot more money than otherwise. 
housing was the big winner of all this. Let's be honest about it. Although we can talk about mortgage lenders in a minute. They're going to pay that price in a year or two as interest rates rise. But what we're looking at on this thing is if you're an American right now, whether you have a savings account, a checking account, a pocketbook, pillow on your mattress, whatever it is, we have $2 trillion more in our possessions today than we had a year ago. We know those people lost their jobs, they burned through their savings, everything else like that. They're not better off. But we as a society have two trillion more. And that's where the big concern about inflation is coming in. Because when you have a limited amount of goods to buy and you got a lot of money in your pocket and you haven't been able to go out and buy things and we're able to go out and buy things now, then you bid up the price. That's one of the reasons we're seeing, well, Redfin and one of the last studies I saw, they're seeing bidding competition on home sales in 63% of the transactions. I think that's the correct number. My goodness, folks. Well, why not? What else are you going to spend your money on? My dad, the rancher, bought a new Ford F-150 last year. Uh, His dealer in Texas would like to buy it back. They offered him full price. We'll give you what you paid for almost a year ago if you just return it. And we'll we'll get another one for you when we can get them in stock. And they're going to sell it for more because there's such a shortage of vehicles. And again, that's going to be inflationary. We're seeing inflation rising. And that's the big concern on housing. And on all things, right? I mean, as we're seeing supply chains not able to pick the slack back up as quickly. So I wanted to ask you about that. And especially as it relates to the American Recovery Act and that deficit spending, which automatically get some people very concerned. And then there's questions about, okay, how healthy can the GDP become given some of these shortages in whether it's lumber or computer chips for new cars or whatever that is? How do you see all of those things kind of correlating together? especially with the concern about inflationary pressure. So I think here's one of the things we're looking at. You didn't even mention the president's goal to raise taxes. By the way, let's put it up front. Then Vice President Biden campaign on increasing taxes if he becomes president. Mm-hmm. He wore up front. There's no surprises what President Biden's doing. He said, I'm going to raise taxes on the rich, transfer that to the less fortunate. If you're surprised at what he's doing, then you need to go back and look at some of his campaign tapes. He's doing exactly what he said he was going to do. The big concern right now, even more so than inflation is, we have a hot economy because we have all this spending. And we know, as I told you, we're gigging the GDP this year by 4% on that 1.9 trillion American recovery plan. We're going to gig it another 2% next year on that 1.9 trillion. But if you raise taxes on the rich, you will start to slow that growth. I think that one of the reasons that President Biden is pushing so hard for the infrastructure plan and the others right now is the increased taxes coming in, the economy will shrink unless you have other demand that's coming along. And I think that's what those two plans are for, so that you will continue that growth for at least another two years. The problem is right now, we're looking at every one of those forecasts of more than 6% on GDP this year alone. I want to ask you all this question. I want you to make a list, one through five. Name me five things that cost less today than a year ago and see if you can name one. No, I'm trying really hard. I can't. I mean, even adopted puppy dogs and kitty cats are at a shortage. I can't name one thing. Gasoline. How much more is gasoline costing since the 1st of January yeah. this year? This goes on and on and on. Our big concern is that as we've increased the federal debt, the largest we've ever increased in such a short period of time. Oh, yeah. Let's just throw in the last 10 years. Let's go back to 2008 or let's do 13 what, 14 years. So what we've been beneficial right now is interest rates. Our government, the way they borrow money, they just sell treasuries. Government prints up a treasury, sells it to you, you buy it. And let's go back to last August. August last year, government printed up a 10-year treasury. And Mary, you bought that 10-year treasury. And what you're going to get every year for the next 10 years, you're going to get 0.52% interest, one half of 1%. At the end of 10 years, you're going to get your 100000 or your million dollars back. That's it. So that has been beneficial to the government that we just didn't have to worry about financing this. But as these interest rates go up. Oh, and let me tell you how much they've gone up. I mentioned in the first week in August last year, 10-year treasury was 0.52%. Today, it was 1.6% change. That's three times. It's over a 200% increase. So our government, compared to last August, is now having to pay three times the amount of interest on any new debt issues. And remember, our 30-year rate this past week just hit 3% again. What happens when we go back to heaven forbid? I'm not even going to talk about the early 1980s when we saw 30-year residential mortgages at 17 to 19%. What happens when rates go to 6%? That means our interest on our federal debt more than doubles. And remember, we have to borrow that money to pay that interest today. 
and it starts to snowball. You borrow more and more and more. At some point in time, when you have too much debt, someone's going to say, you know what? I'm not going to loan you anymore. Or if I loan you more, it's going to be a much higher rate because you're riskier. And that is the future that scares me now. doesn't scare me as much because I'm 67, but it scares the heck out of me when I look at my children and grandchildren because someone's going to pay for this. Let me ask you this practically. Yes, of course it has to get paid for. Is there any consolation in the fact that basically the whole world is in a similar situation or is the whole world in a similar situation? I don't know if everybody did the deficit spending similar to how we did. I mean, it kind of kept an eye on Europe, but I'll have to confess, I'm not up on how some others have dealt with it. So is it high debt and more expensive debt? Yes. But relative to the rest of the world, does that give us any hope for things being kind of normalized? Like everybody's in the same boat or are we in a different situation? We're in a different situation to the other economic development countries from this one aspect. But you all know this if you read my blog, blog blog.stirit.com. About once every three years, I write on what population is going to grow going to be in all the countries in the world. This is a number that's forecast by the U.S. Census. There's 36 major economic developed countries. We're the only one of the 36 that by the year 2050 is going to have population growth, net population growth. Y'all remember the old tale of the person who went to sleep and they wouldn't wake up for decades and they'd wake back up. Well, let's say you're that person, but let's say you just wake up every year. Go to sleep. Now in the U.S., every year you're going to wake up and odds are you're going to have the same or more people. But if you went to sleep in the United Kingdom or Germany or France or Italy or Spain, Russia, Japan, Australia, many of these countries, if you went to sleep and you woke up a year or two or three or 10 years later, you would actually have less people. And the problem is you're going to have to pay that debt as interest rates rise on the backs of the number of people that are there employed at that point in time. And lo and behold, we will actually have a bigger workforce of people to spread that burden on. And the rest of the developed countries in the world won't. So we're better off from that one demographic aspect. Oh, and by the way, that includes the diminished net in migration. That's included in it. One other thing we're seeing right now is what was not included in it is the increased birth rate, which, well, you've been at home for the last 14 months, things happen. Let's just talk about it. Uh, I think you're referring to drinking alcohol, right, Ted? Well, we could be again on that one. We're going to talk about alcohol once again, Mary. That's right. From that aspect, we're a little different than a lot of countries, but the next 12 months are looking really good. We have enough money from that $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, ARP, that kind of gets us through. Let me give you a worst case scenario. Let's say that this virus mutates today and we just do this, what we did last year, we do it again because that's what we would do. We'd shut our back down. We do Operation Warp Speed 2, all that kind of stuff. We would see new plans come out to keep money in people's pockets. I actually think that the government would throw so much money at us this time that we wouldn't even have a recession. I think GDP would say zero or positive this entire time. Now, you can't do that forever, but I think they would do it again if that were to happen. So I'm not too worried about that. Now, housing sales, that's a little bit of a different picture because even though I just just described a really neat scenario, uh, not everyone's agreeing where housing sales are going to go in the coming 12 months. Now, very fortunately, Fannie Mae and the NBA every month forecast housing sales. They did it for this year and next year and then even the next year, but let's just look at the next 18, 19 months. And you want to talk about a difference. Right now, Fannie Mae says, this is their May forecast, that we're going to see existing home sales this year go up 4.8%. The NBA says this year compared to last year, we're going to see home sales go up 8.3%, about double. That's a huge divergence from two very smart groups of people. NBA says 8.3%, Fannie says 4.8%. You average out at 6%. What I just told y'all, and I'm talking to title agents right now, your existing home sales are going to be really good this year. They're going to be more than they were last year in numbers. And prices? Well, Fannie Mae says this year, median price goes up 12.2%. The NBA says prices only go up 3.1%. I'll tell you why in a minute. So if you have more home sales at a higher price, your title premiums go up on purchase transactions. So I'm just trying to tell y'all, you title agents out there and even the underwriters, let's talk about it. We've got a great year ahead of us as far as purchase lending of existing homes go. Let me do 2022 on those same two forecasts. Fannie Mae says that next year, home sales drop about 5%. NBA says no home sales go up 5%. Let's average them. It's flat. Next year, they're also the two of them, their averages, home values only go up about 3%. So what I'm trying to tell y'all is we got a great year in front of us. Even if Fannie Mae and the NBA correct, either one, we're looking at a nice nudge next year, 3% at total premium of total R volume sales. But wait, there's more. And it's not pretty because I'm going to talk about the lending side. When they say no good deed goes unpunished, it, the lender's right 
now are going to be bearing the burden on this. Not the title agent, not the realtor. It's going to be the lenders. Last year, 60% of all residential lending in the U.S. was refis, right? We're just going to say you're a lender and it's going to be real simple. You got 10 total loan officers. And last year, 60% of your business was refi. So this year, the estimate is that refis will drop about 25%. That's the combination average between Fannie Mae and the MBA. And next year, it's going to drop another 57%. So that means we're going to go typical lender this year. We're going to go from 10 lending officers last year, eight this year to six by the end of next year, which means they will have shed 40% of their employee workforce. And that's the new state of business. Businesses are getting lean and mean. In the good old days, we say it's a downturn. We'll keep all those people on. Not anymore. This day, we got to be lean, mean business machine because we don't know what that next turn in the road. We don't know if this pandemic's coming back. And we're talking housing here. We could be talking commercial because commercial flat got ugly last year. I do want to talk about that. Yeah. yeah. So from the housing side, I'm going to tell you about new home sales. First of all, title agents, this is national average. There are 6.6 existing home sales for every new home sale. Our new home sales are going to have a hard time increasing about material and cost of things, whether it's lumber or appliances or anything else like that. Think about this one. This is a National Association of Home Builders statistic. Just the softwood timber to frame the typical new home from April last year to today cost $36,000 more, $35,800 and change. Just the wood. Put it differently. If you're going to build a typical one-bedroom apartment, just the wood to frame that one-bedroom apartment costs $13,000 more. Let me tell you what that means in economics. That means that new apartment, just based on the wood to frame that, you're going to have to get another $119 a month rent just to cover that. That's inflation, Mary. That's what we were talking about earlier. So then you throw in our builders. There's no more electricians. We've employed them all. Plumbers. I joke. A year ago, before this thing started, I was speaking to a group of mortgage bankers in Austin, Texas. Big tech center. You know, they got chip factories and all that kind of plants and chip engineers and all this kind of stuff. And I was joking to them. I said, I'll bet some of your electricians and plumbers make as much money as some of these engineers and chip plants. And I had one of the MBA lenders tell me, he says, no, they make more. Mm -hmm. And you're more than 130 grand a year in Austin, Texas as plumbers, certified journeyman lumber, uh, electricians and plumbers. We're not making anymore. Oh, and then let me talk about appliances. Now, this is coming from my heart because last June, our washing machine died. When you buy a new washing machine, you buy a new dryer too, as you know. It's like you don't buy one new tire, you buy two tires for your axle. It took us almost three months to get a new washing machine. And Mary, it wasn't as if my new washing machine was coming from China or Korea or anything else like that. It came from Wisconsin. It was a speed queen. It just took that long to get in the queue to get one because there's a shortage of everything. And that's why prices are going up so much even more. It's all about supply and demand. There's so many threads I want to go down with you based on what you've said. So based on that residential inventory problem, the increased costs for new builds. Let's go over and talk about commercial for a little bit, because I think a lot of us have an intuition about what's going to happen in the commercial market. I'm sure you've got some data. And I'd love to hear that. And I wonder then ultimately, does all that together translate into it's going to be more economical to convert some previous commercial spaces into residential or walk us through all that, would you? You're right on the money. You need to be giving my talks now, Mary. I'm proud of you on this one. So let's talk commercial. Our commercial was moving extremely well. We had a great economy until this pandemic hit last year. Now, in the third quarter last year, this is commercial sales of real estate across the United States, dropped 53% in the third quarter, year over year. So third quarter 2019 to third quarter 2020, down 53%. I was forecasting that Q4 would be down about 60%, 55%. And the reason I did that, if you looked at what happened between 08 and 09 and 10, we literally saw commercial sales drop 88% in 24 months. So I figured we're going to go down that same track. Along comes fourth quarter and our sales nationwide were only down 9%. You have to realize that something happened in the last month and a half of the year that change commercial landscape for last year and a little bit for this year. It's a kind of a one-time change. Then Vice President Biden campaigned of taxing the wealthy. He specifically went after, he says, I don't like the rich getting lower than normal tax rate capital gains taxes on their gains. Let's put it in full perspective. Currently, right now, the capital gains rate is 20% plus 3.8%. The 3.8% came about in 2012. It's actually enforced in 2013 uh, when they passed the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. You got to pay for it. And one of the ways they paid for it was they put in, they call it, basically it's a 3.8% tax just not on capital gains. It's net investment tax. And so if you're paying 20% on capital gains and also other ordinary incomes of certain amounts, you would pay the 20% plus the 3.8%. It's also known as Affordable Care Act tax. It's also known as Obamacare tax. So our effective capital gains rate as of today, assuming that nothing changes, is 23.8%. President Biden campaign, they said, first of all, he wants to repeal the Tax Cut and Job Creation Act. That would take a 
ordinary tax rate back to 39.6% plus the 3.8%. So that means that the top federal ordinary tax rate will be 43.4%. And then he also added, he wants to eliminate 1031 exchanges for anyone on any transaction that earns more than a half million dollars. By the way, can you name me a big commercial transaction that's not going to earn more than that and completely eliminate 1031s? Wow. If that were the case, then we're going to go from that 23.8% to 43.4%. And there are 10 states that their effective capital gains tax, when you add in the state and local level in, in some certain cities, your capital gains tax will be as high as 60%. That's going to choke off some activity, right? It will. So first of all, before we do that, let's see what happened in the last month and a half of last year in 2020. Okay. So all of a sudden, we know middle of November, Vice President Biden's a new president. And then people realized he said he was going to raise these taxes. So we saw, and I think many of our competitors did too, we saw a large number of people that had maybe commercial sales were going to take place in the first or second quarter of this year. And they didn't know what the tax rate was going to be. And they pulled them back into 2020. As a result, instead of going down as much as we did in the fourth quarter, it actually came out pretty good, down less than 10%. But it's also explaining why the industry as a whole saw a big hole in the first quarter commercial revenue. Not all the major underwriters report commercial, three of them break it out. As a whole, they were down in the first quarter compared to a year ago. And that's not surprising. Now, the question is this year, what is the president and Congress going to do? Are they going to enact these things? Well, fair enough. Let's say they raise the capital gains taxes, just like you said. But the question is, does he make it retroactive to the 1st of January this year? Or do they make it retroactive whenever they pass it? Or do they make it active to 1st of next year? And we don't know any of this. We don't know what they're going to pass. We don't know what the rate's going to be. And we don't know if it's going to be. So if it's prospective, we should see a flurry of activity yes. before the inception date. But if it's, if it's retroactive, what's that going to be? Well, what is it going to be for people? Is this going to hurt? Because they're going to have to, they think they did a 1031 or anything else like that. They're going to have to pull out their checkbook and give the federal government some more money. I want to take you back, for example, to 2012, because it was prospective. They said in 2012, in 2013, we're going to start collecting more taxes. We saw that flurry. We normally see about 30% of our commercial revenues happen in the fourth quarter. That year, we saw 35%. So we saw a big pullback into that. We may see that again. We just don't know what's going to happen right now. I think we're going to kind of go around a mulberry bush here a little bit. So when you couple that with some of the impetus for the new residential activity, which is sort of a certain segment of workers have kind of a new deal with their employers now post-pandemic, right? Which for a lot of us that used to have to be in the office and needed to then live within a certain mile radius of our office, now there's a lot more flexibility. And we, we know, at least anecdotally, and I think it's starting to prove out statistically that we have folks leaving some of these more expensive markets where they felt they had to be for their employer because a lot of them can live anywhere now. So with regard to that commercial activity, 1031 or not, I feel like a lot of commercial tenants, they haven't yet figured out what their actual need for space is and what their employee need capacity because some are doing hybrid, some are saying you can work remotely all the time. We have some workers who say, I thank you for the flexibility of working remotely, but I need to come in the office. I need that structure. So do you have a crystal ball on how that might settle out? Let's just do this. I'm going to back up. I'm going to do one step earlier. What this pandemic did, it accelerated certain trends. One of them, we'll see this one real easy. We were already buying more e-commerce. We just bought a lot more quicker. Q2 last year, we had a massive increase. And Q3 and 4 were higher than the year before that, not as high as Q2 was. It accelerated that trend. Second one, we already saw the acceleration, just what you said. We already had people leaving California and heading to the Southwest and Pacific Northwest. It's been going on for 50 years. For 50, same 50 years, people have left New England, the Northeast, the Rust Belt. They're heading to the Sun Belt, probably Florida. This accelerated it. By the way, what accelerated that beforehand was the Tax Cut and Jobs Creation Act. It accelerated people five years ago to leave those high tax domiciles. And we accelerated that. And if President Biden and Congress does increase federal taxes, you will accelerate that again because you can't avoid federal income taxes. But if I'm going to see a big bump in my federal income tax, I can avoid my state income taxes by relocating my tax domicile. Hello, Tennessee. I've always said there's seven states I could live in. I could never live in a state that charges a state income tax. Tennessee's one of them. I wouldn't want to live in South Dakota, although the people are incredible. They are. Only because of the weather. I grew up on a ranch in southwestern Colorado. I don't care for snow at all because I have to feed hay at 30 below zero, five, seven tons a day. Yeah, there are seven states that have no state or local income taxes, and Tennessee's one of those. You got Nevada and, and Florida and some other states like that, Wyoming, Alaska. I'm not going there either. Nice people, don't get me wrong. The third thing that we saw on this acceleration, let's talk about working remotely. 
I've actually been with Stuart now for 24 years. 10 years before that, I was chief economist at Texas A&M and Real Estate Center. Man, I'm on the road. Used to be on the road 240, 260 days a year. Mm-hmm. All I needed to work was Wi-Fi. And I can do, well, y'all are listening to us on that as we speak. And a large number of people realize I don't have to be in the office to do my job. Our tile industry proved that incredibly well this year. If it works so well, it says we don't all have to be in the office at the same point in time. Most of the people don't realize, remember we talked about housing having the highest intrinsic value in history? In the fourth quarter of last year, we sold more apartments at any time in history. That quarter, total dollar volume apartments mm-hmm. ever before. Housing was important. So there's two big winners that come out of this pandemic. Number one, we already know housing, multifamily apartments. And number two, industrial properties. Everything that you bought via the internet last year didn't come from a storefront on Main Street. I think it came from an industrial property. Look at our grocery stores. We all started kind of stocking up and we're buying a lot more everything, whether it's cold storage or frozen or anything else like that. We'll be increased demand for industrial space. That's all industrial. We're trying to build more stuff here. Look at our personal protection equipment, PPE, whether it's masks or anything. We want to be able to produce here because we know we can't rely on things down the line. So industrial space. Now the two losers, well, we already talked about retail and the other one's got to be office space. Our office space is at least 31% vacant as we speak today. And I think a lot are still sitting on the fence, not knowing what their appropriate square footage lease will be in six, nine months, because they're kind of waiting to see how this goes. So that could certainly increase, right? It is. A good example of this, the largest office building west of the Mississippi is called the Salesforce Tower in San Francisco. And Salesforce is one of these groups saying, you know, at least 20% of our you people never, ever need to be in the office ever again. Some of y'all may need to come in a couple days a week, like you're hybrid, like you're talking. Some of y'all are mission critical. You need to be here every day. And we're just going to see that play out across the United States. Y'all need to read my Twitter account, DRTCJ under Twitter. Some of these studies are saying 40% of the people saying, if I'm forced to go back to the office, I'll just go find another job. So it's a different modus operandi of work out there as we speak today. Yeah. A lot of differences going in there right now. And a lot of people are saying, I love my freedom. Now, one other thing in this, and everyone thinks it's all great and all this kind of stuff. Remember, you may have got to move out of San Francisco or New York or um, Chicago, and you work in the hinterlands, or even you may have moved out of Los Angeles and you're someplace Nevada, very often your employer knows your cost living is less and they're actually instigating salary cuts for those people that live in those more affordable areas. I think that's kind of fair. Our businesses have to stay in business. Now, got to tell you, we still have those 8.2 million jobs. When I tell you they're not coming back, I mean they're not coming back because we don't need all those jobs. We've learned how to do it. I know that most of y'all don't live in an oil producing area. I do. I live in Houston, Texas. Let me tell you what the oil industry's done over their volatility. Our industry's got hit with this thing really hard this time. Think about the oil and gas industry. Go back to 07, 09. We saw oil prices go from 30-some bucks a barrel to 140 bucks a barrel back to 30-some bucks a barrel in less than 24 months. Imagine if your revenues did that. So what the oil and gas industry did, I'll take you back to 2014. We were producing a little over 8 million barrels per day in the U.S. Well, that year averaged a little over $93 per barrel. We had 525,000 workers. Fast forward to 2020, the last full year of data we have. We started to produce 11.8 million barrels per day, about 30% more oil, 28% change. Oil prices dropped. This will blow you away. I mean, oil prices dropped so much, it dropped from $93 a barrel to $39 per barrel. Oh, and we cut our workforce from 525,000 to 319,000 workers. So we ended up producing 30% more oil with 40% fewer workers. I guarantee you every business in America is doing that as we speak. I completely agree. And they have to. And so as you look at this and say, okay, whether it's these efficiencies as they pertain to each market segment, whether it's bots, AI, just as an easy visual, think about the number of tractor trailers on the road and then think about them not having humans driving them and all of the offshoots of that. And so, well, it's wonderful news, as you said, that we've realized that some of our manufacturing has to come back in this country so that we don't have these dependencies in cataclysmic scenario that has to be, I would think, counterbalanced by we're going to need fewer and fewer workers and not just in a thought exercise for 30, 50 years from now, but in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And so from an economic standpoint, how do we solve for that or how do we adjust to that? Is it worth an exploration of a UBI, a universal basic income pilot project? Or where do we fill in the gaps as these things continue to trend away from from human workers. Well, perhaps rather than a universal basic income, it's better off that you say, if you lose your job in one sector, we will give
give you the opportunity to retool. If you decline on that, then we're going to cut you free. Uh, I'm one of the people that believes if you pay someone not to work, they will do that the rest of their life. On the other hand, if I give you an opportunity to retool, I don't expect a six-year-old person to retool to be a software programmer. Let's be honest about that. I lived in New Zealand for three years. New Zealand, this is 1980, 81, 82, very socialistic country, nationalized medicine. They technically had Obamacare for 30 years before I got there. You got to retire when you're 52, 53 years of age after 20, 30 years of service. So taxes were very high. We paid, I think, about 68% of our gross income was income tax at $43,000. But on the other hand, you had a lot of services, what have you. They would retool people. Oh, they would also do this. If you're an employer and you decide to lay off people because you have new technology, you had to pay those people redundancy payments, as I called it. So if they'd been worked back for 10 years, you had to pay for the next three years and gave an opportunity to retool. And we don't have that today. So I'm one of these people that would say, if you're going to do that, then I want to pay you not to work forever, but I am willing to pay you to retool. On the other hand, a lot of people are going to say, you're asking me to move to maybe from North Dakota on the pipeline, XL pipeline, and you want me to go to Louisiana? And I'm not going to do that. And I, I respect that too, because people's lives and families and everything else. You know, at some point in time, you say, okay, we gave you the opportunity. Here's the money. You can go retool, but do what you want. And at that point in time, it's on your own burden. I want to backtrack too, Mary, on one aspect. You talked about what are we going to do with all this space? One of my tweets, I'm going to take in my Twitter account, DRTCJ. This was from 19th of January. And it's just an example. In our Alexander, Virginia, one block from the water, it was a vacant four-story office building, about 66,000 square feet. And it sold for $13.1 million. And they're going to convert it to 54 condos. We're behind. In fact, one of my estimates says we're 4.6 million homes behind in the last 10 years that we needed. Homes, apartments, condos, efficiencies, the whole works. Number dwelling units, up to 7 million. And we can't build that fast enough, but it's a lot less materials intense to convert something than it is to build something for new. Now, it's also very expensive to convert, but I think we're going to see a lot of conversions take place. Now, let's go to the retail side. Amazon has either converted parts or all of 25 super regional shopping centers as industrial distribution centers. We just saw in California one of the latest conversions of a super regional shopping center. It's going to be self-storage because we just don't need as much shopping as we've gone online and different ways we buy. And several of the things that you have talked about through this conversation, you mentioned the activities, the largely legislative, although somewhat regulatory, but mostly legislative catalysts that would come out of Washington, D.C. However, we're not seeing a lot of bipartisan activity, and this isn't new. We haven't seen bipartisan activity for a while. Let's talk about sort of what do you see with regard to that? Do you see some, I'll take an easy one, infrastructure? Or do you think we're going to see people from each side of the aisle coming together on that common ground? Because I've been hearing the promise of that my entire adult life. But it sounds like a lot of these changes are predicated on a set of actions or possibly some inactions in D.C. So tell us about that. We might agree on infrastructure, but they won't agree on the definition of infrastructure. Yeah, I was raised in infrastructure, things like schools and bridges and hospitals and roads and you know, all that kind of stuff. And all of sudden now they're saying infrastructure no is K through 12, pre-kindergarten from three years old and up. I don't see any agreement of that coming up whatsoever. Yeah, I don't think we're going to so see So if, if you ask me, do I see any agreement in Congress right now? The answer is no. Don't see that happening on any of that stuff. I don't even see that type of agreement within the Democratic Party. Don't even see that level of agreement of what they want to do. The definition of is is. Yeah, there you go on that one. That's a really good one. Yeah. It sounds like we need to keep a very close eye on that. And we have opinions on it. Certainly let those representatives know. But it seems as though, tell me if I'm thinking about this correctly or incorrectly, it seems as though Congress has been more than willing for the past X number of years to not legislate. And then therefore, the presidency becomes far more active with in the areas that they can do executive orders, in the areas that they can change regulation or at least enforcement. And so we get a lot of this careening to one side or another, as opposed to a more balanced approach that, say, on the Senate side, you can secure 60 votes for or something like that. Do you see that trend continuing? The volatility is going to remain there. Let me give you an example. Minimum wage. Let me tell you my perception of minimum wage so you know where I'm coming from. First of all, I don't know how a household could live on $15 per hour. Secondly, am I in favor of a federal minimum wage? The answer is no, but not for the reason you think. One size doesn't fit all. $15 for minimum wage might work for someone from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, but it certainly doesn't work for anyone in Seattle, Washington, or New York City, or Chicago, or Miami. So the Congressional Budget Office has just completed a study. It just came out. They update it every year. They said, what are the ramifications to jobs? 
jobs and to people if we have a $15 per hour minimum wage. Here's the good news. You will lift 900,000 people out of poverty. Bravo, let's applaud that. That's just great news. Applaud that. The bad news is you'll eliminate 1.4 million jobs. Just about 10 days ago, I was walking through the Seattle SeaTac Airport, and every fast food restaurant now has laid off all of their counter workers. Every fast food restaurant, you will go up to the kiosk, you will order what you want, and you will self-cashier. They only accept digital. They just put your whatever you ordered up on the counter. They don't even call your name. You go up there when your number's called and you get it. So I talked to the manager. I said, how many workers did you have working this counter? He said, we used to have 42 positions over the week that were full-time positions. We can't remember, open seven days, large number of hours per day. That's 42 jobs eliminated one little fast food franchise at SeaTac Airport. Not at all in favor of minimum wage. I think if you're going to have minimum wages, then you need to look at what your cost of living is, respectively, locally. And the local's going to have to do something about that because every place is different. Every place is different. And then... We talk about these shortages of workers right now or willing workers. Rural Illinois, where you would think, oh, 15 would be certainly far above what a minimum wage would be expected to be in a place like that. Yet fast food and hotels are advertising right now in a very small county for 13, 14, and in some cases, $15 an hour plus a lot of paid benefits that they would not have paid before plus signing bonuses. So the workforce is kind of pushing the market there, at least in certain areas where you wouldn't expect it. So you're right, sort of that natural balance, which is isn't always perfect, but it's usually pretty organic, is in many places already getting there. It's all about supply and demand. And the interaction of supply and demand gives us price and the amount we're going to buy. And that's true whether it's labor or anything else like that. Now, there are sometimes the alternatives are not attractive. Think how many hundreds of thousands of dollars these fast food restaurants had to put in technology to replace our counter stuff. But on the long run, it's a payoff. Remember, I think that all this did is accelerate us into the survival mode of small business. And most title agents are small business. Title agency America over 60% of the title industry's revenue sources. Mom and pops, guys, you are in that survival mode, deeper trenches, just everyone else in America. And you've seen it before. We all remember 08 and 09, don't we? But ours was even exasperated, multiplied times the claims issues that we saw. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I think we right now are in better shape than we've ever been because our underwriting on our homes have been so good. We just don't have the subprime lending. We have FHA's new subprime. We know there's some of that out there. We're looking at our lowest foreclosure rate in decades. We're looking at the 30 days in arrears, I don't count anything in forbearance. It's the lowest it's ever been in history, percentage-wise, of homes with loads. But we still have some insanity going on out there. I almost want to talk about the stock market and talk about the insanity. Oh, yes, let's do. All right. So I'm not going to talk about any individual company. I'm going to talk about what people are paying for stock. Not all stocks go up at the same time. Not all stocks go down at the same time. You can have the market plunge and you have some stocks that rise. So I'm not talking about any individual stock. But I want to talk to you about the insanity of what people are doing in the stock market. It's also one of the reasons why I think it's a great time to overweight in real estate markets today. Here's my forecast. I'm talking about the stock market as an aggregate. I truly do believe that stock market in the next 30 months will drop between 20% and 30% in value. I don't think that's going to happen to houses. Now, it's going to happen to hotels. We already know that because that demand is not coming back for years. I would rather overweight in real estate today than overweight in the stock market. Oh, well, that makes so much sense. And I've been having some fears about, is this housing boom a bubble? And is it going to burst? Like, are we going to be in that feast famine cycle again? And did a great job right at the top of explaining why, no, it's not a bubble. And even though I would have disagreed with you a year ago in March when you said it's going to remain strong, and I would look at the underpinnings of it, of a pandemic, job uncertainty, you know, all of those things and thought, well, that the healthy market we were enjoying then couldn't last. Like we were just going to get through the pipeline of what was there. Granted, I take a Gainesian approach to thing and I thought, I don't know where the demand is going to come from. But that inherent home value for each individual, that skyrocketed during this. And so you made that make a lot of sense. Then as we've kind of wound our way through commercial and stock market and all of that and employment, that all of it starts to really gel up and I think give people a really good picture of why you forecast what you do. So if I'm a title agent right now, my staff is exhausted because we stayed on full bore and full boat during this whole thing and we're tired and we're trying to hire people. And we can't find, we certainly can't find qualified people. And I would think if I'm an owner, I'm wondering, okay, do I make the investment in hiring a greenhorn and training them into this? Or are we at the tail end of this? And it sounds like you might recommend that they go ahead and make some investment in some future talent 
because we're going to continue to need staff for a while. Well, all right. So on the house, remember, 60% of our business last year was refis. Literally 40% of total business walks out the door two years now in refis. That means if I had 10 employees, I only need six in the number of transactions. I would be very leery in training staff. Now, that said, I think we need to be underwriters, title examiners. Escrow officers, we need to grow crops just like a farmer does, just for static place replacements. Unless you're in a family that's in the title insurance business, nobody goes to college saying, I'm going to be in the title insurance. Look at myself. I grew up at a sheep ranch degree in finance and statistics. Yeah, I'm a real estate guy and I'm going to be in the title business. And here I am. And I love this business. I love this business. I love the people. Now, that said, some of you are in market areas that even when the market backs off, you're going to be in the Florida that's going to benefit from the continued excess south of Northeast Corridor. You're going to be in Boise, Idaho or Denver, Colorado. Other places that are actually booming from this, Austin, Texas, Fort Collins, Colorado. I look at these markets and I know you're going to be in growth even as the economy shrinks some. On the other hand, if you're that office in New Jersey or maybe downtown Los Angeles or San Francisco, I realize that we may have a large number of our customers move elsewhere. I don't think there's a one size fits everyone answer on that one either. Well, it sounds like obviously, as always, real estate's local. Be very tied into what's going on locally. Do your normal infill. Don't be hesitant about that with our normal churn, but maybe not staff up from your current levels. Just sort of try to buckle in, hang on, buy them some spa gift certificates or whatever they need to keep going through this. It might not be wise to invest in a lot of pressure relief at this point. I think you're a lot better off just hiring an experienced employee, paying them a big premium to get through this push than to, you know, very often when you hire a person and train them, you may have a couple of negative years and that's a headwind you don't need right now. On the other hand, we've got to cultivate replacements. Sure. I think the title industry, the employees, the workers, the associates are exhausted. They've done 60 hour weeks. We may have as an industry more people that have had COVID than maybe any other industry except perhaps medical. I don't know because you've been associated with so many people. On the other hand, look what the investment technology and what have you has paid off. And I'll start first with the realtors. When I moved to Houston in the 1990s, Houston Association of Realtors was the first realtor group in the country that put a consumer-facing website. Their sign, the Houston Association, is a big sign, you say Houston Association of Realtors. It's the number one traffic location in all of Texas. And they took down the site that said Houston Association of Realtors. They put up a sign that said HAR.com, 35,000 homes available for purchase. Didn't even say realtor. And they caught flack, like, you can't do that. Closed on a place in 2019 in the Caribbean on an iPad with DocuSign. Negotiated on that. Never signed my name permanently. And the only time I had to sign my name with the real pin was about a month after closing. My attorney said, hey, if you sign here, I'll give you a memory stick with all your documents on it. What do you, what do you say about this? We have had innovation systems, remote online authorization. Where would you be without all the software that you have doing this business? Can you imagine going back to papers and shuffling those papers and trying to deal with what you dealt with? Maybe rather than investing that extra money right now in developing new people, let's just invest in some technology and make our current people that much more productive. Get the efficiency scale moving again. Yeah, that's true because a lot of people have just been doing what they've needed to do to get by. They've done, for example, enough on to meet sort of insistent demand. And that's been <laughs> been kind of schizophrenic, depending on what market you were in and all that. And obviously, that's going to continue to trend upwards as well. But yeah, that's a probably a pretty good prescription, at least in the shorter and medium range until we sort of see what a new normal looks and feels like and walks like and quacks like. And what our taxes are. If, I'm going to say this, if we go to a 43.4% capital gains tax rate effective on big commercial deals, eliminate 1031s, hit those taxes, and that's just on the federal level, I think we could see potentially our commercial sell transaction volume drop by 50%. And the reason I say that, you got to add in all the state and local taxes because that's what everyone's going to pay. Many states don't have those. Can you imagine in a, any big commercial transaction, big may be your rental house, your duplex you just bought. That may be a half million dollar gain, and that may take you to that level. You do that. Imagine paying 50% or more of your total gain as income taxes, which says to me, well, first of all, you just reduce the value of your investment because you're not going to get the return. And secondly, if my transaction costs and that's just taxes are that much great, I'm not going to sell every seven, eight, 10 years. I'll sell every 20 years. And that means you and I will, well, commercial brokers and real estate agents are going to have half as many transactions to sell. That means we're going to have half as many transactions to close. On lenders, you're going to have half as many transactions to do that on. And it will dramatically slow the churn volume in that 
line. And we know that it's not uncommon for the major underwriters to report their commercial revenues on their direct, very often above 40% of their both direct and affiliated income, commercial fees, because they can break it out because they're counting things and stuff like that. That's big money if that were to happen to anyone. Or even if it's yours is 20%, if we have that, it would be 10%. Can you imagine 10% of your business walking out the door because of tax law change? It's a lot of things to keep track of. And you've mentioned several things throughout our talk. I just want to recap what are some of your biggest concerns for the future of the economy that you're going to be watching and that we should be watching either through you or on our own or both? So my biggest concern right now is Congress and the president. And when I say this, my biggest concern is going to go to the Green New Deal. Why? To talk about the Green New Deal, I have to tell you where I come from. Do I believe in global warming? Yes, I do. Do I believe it's man-made? No, I don't. Why do I say that? Well, go back the last four million years, a couple million years, how many ice ages have come and gone? How many times we froze down that glaciers form and how many times they melted down? All these gold fields are where old glaciers came down, dried up, melted down, the whole works, and you have this gold, all this kind of stuff. What caused that? Because man wasn't here to do it then. The latest research from Australia that's being generally accepted in the world is the Earth's axis tilts periodically. Tilts one direction, it heats up, turns the other direction, it cools off. They're saying that there's nothing you can do about that. And secondly, even if we in the U.S. do all this thing to lower temperatures, if China and India and other countries like that don't do it, we're not going to retard temperature gains. Do I believe man's cause it? No, I don't. But that said, all right, if we had our druthers, if there was a perfect energy, it would be hydroelectricity. The reason is it's the cheapest form of electrical generation. It's completely renewable. Snow falls, melts, rain falls, goes, you know, build a dam, spin it through a turbine. The problem is every time you build a new dam, you either kill an endangered species or you create some. In fact, in the Pacific Northwest, my understanding, we're going to cut a couple dams in the next 10 years trying to save some endangered species. So we're not going to build any more dams. Now, you come down to the Green New Deal, people are saying carbon dioxide is bad. If they say that, I'm not going to disagree with that. Well, I would rather that we went to natural gas because it has less than half the carbon dioxide emissions per BTU of energy than any other fossil fuel source. Literally think about this. We could beat the Paris Accord target reduction in carbon dioxide if we just converted our coal-fired plants in the United States to natural gas-fired plants. And we got a lot of natural gas. But the environmentalists say no, no carbon. And they say no new nuclears. So all of a sudden you're down to solar and wind. You got to talk about solar and wind from honest standpoint. There's a study and it was it's in the Manhattan Institute. Manhattan Institute's a neat group because you have to be vetted by both the left and the right. You just can't be that person that says, oh, this is bad. This is good. You got to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Because a lot of people on the right don't tell the, the whole truth. People on the left don't tell the whole truth. You got to tell both sides of the story. Let's say you want to make electricity. If you want to generate electricity and you spend a million dollars to drill an oil or gas well, and that's fracking too, by the way, and some people don't like that, got to tell it like it is, then that million dollar investment over the next 30 years is going to generate about 320 million kilowatt hours electricity. If we spent the same million dollars on wind energy, it's going to generate about 55 million kilowatt hours, not 320 million, but 55 million, which means wind energy is six times more expensive than our current fossil fuel based energy. And if you do solar collectors, it's eight times more expensive. It's going to produce 40 million kilowatt hours, according to, and again, this is Credit Suisse. This, these are bona fide sources that talk about this, which means it's eight times more expensive. And you say, oh, don't worry, technology will bail us out. But there's an unfortunate thing because we got to talk the science and physics of energy. There was a professor, and granted, this is 1919, was a physicist, Betz from Germany. Betz came out with what's called the Betz limit. And the Betz limit simply says this, all wind is is kinetic energy. You can never capture all the kinetic energy. Something's going to slip around the turbines and what have you. Betz said, if you have the perfect materials, which we don't have even now, and the perfect design, that a wind turbine can only ever capture 59.3% of the wind wherever that's at, wherever, how big your thing is, however that is. So we're currently capturing about 45%. So our wind turbines have the capability of improving about a third for new ones in the future, assuming we get the materials and design, which we don't have. So even if you were to improve our wind turbines as technology develops. It's not like computers 10 years ago, that every three years were 100 times more powerful. This one says forever limit on wind, we can improve it by about 33%. So let's talk solar panels. The way they work is kind of simple. The sun emits photons. On any square foot or square meter of space, there's only so many photons that hit it at any point in time. And the way solar panel works is, and most of it's melted quartz, they use coal fired to make it hot enough to melt this quartz down, this crushed quartz. When that photon hits it, 
kicks off an electron. At most, you can ever collect is about 30-some percent, 34% of all the photons. That's what, what's called the Shockley-Kaiser limit. These are two physicists in the U.S., uh, 1961. Again, still thought true. So 34% on a single-surface solar panel. You can go double that on a dual-surface solar panel, but a single-surface solar panel 98% of the time doesn't pay for itself. So since a dual-surface solar panel costs up to 100 times more, then you're never going to build it. We can only improve that efficiency about 31% where we're at. So those are the only improvements, which means even if you got all these improvements today on this other energy, that means that our wind energy is going to cost 400% more than our current energy and our solar energy is going to cost 600% more. What's going to happen to the value of homes and the value of our industry if just your utility bills go up 400 to 600%? It's not a money you can spend on your home if you're spending it on energy. And I don't know that we have any sanity or intellectual honesty, and I think we need both of those. Agreed. All right. What else are you concerned about and have watch on? Oh, Washington, D.C. Uh, by the way, if you're not contributing to your state land title pact or, or the American Land Title Association, shame on you. Because they're the only ones that are looking out for you. The realtors are looking out for us pretty good. The mortgage bankers are pretty good. Builders pretty good. And us. Guys, not everyone else likes us that much. Let's be honest about it. How many people have you ever been at a party that came to you and said, oh, thank you for charging me for my refinance? Appreciate that. That's right. Well, Ted, I can't thank you enough for this conversation. So much has been on my mind through this again since... I saw you in Alaska and, and you had called it all. Your Twitter account is morning required reading for me. So I hope it is so for more people after they hear this conversation. Thank you so much for making the time today. And I hope you don't mind if we call upon you again as things on the ground continue to change. That was a lot of very useful information, wasn't it? We're hoping it's helpful as you work to shape your financial and operational planning for the future. We've included Ted's email address and Twitter handle in the show notes, and he's happy to answer any questions you have. If you don't already follow Ted, I really recommend you add him to your news feed. All right, as we wrap up today, please take a moment to take our quick survey about your interests so we can shape future conversations in the areas that are most important to you. You can also access the survey in the show notes. It won't take but a couple of minutes to complete. Until next time, lace up your track shoes a little tighter because we still have a hot market to service. And remember, if what we do was easy, everyone would be doing it. So it's a good thing we are tough. And always remember that what you do matters.